Thank you for checking out the Detroit Church Podcast. We're a growing community in the heart of the city, and we exist to awaken Detroit to the greatest adventure of all time. Although the pandemic causes us to adjust our methods, our message stays the same. God, through Jesus, is making all things new. John 11, verse 1 through 47. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. When Jesus got the message, he said, The sickness is not fatal. It will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. They said, Rabbi, you can't do that. The Jews are out to kill you, and you're going back? Jesus replied, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daylight doesn't stumble because there's plenty of light from the sun. Walking at night, he might very well stumble because he can't see where he's going. He said these things and then announced, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. The disciples said, Master, if he's gone to sleep, he'll get a good rest and wake up feeling fine. Jesus was talking about death while his disciples thought he was talking about taking a nap. Then Jesus became explicit. Lazarus died. And I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now let's go to him. That's when Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his companions, Come along, we might as well die with him. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Mary and Martha, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Jesus said, Your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, Where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. 
Others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. He came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe, and with a kerchief over his face, Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. That was a turnaround for many of the Jews who were with Mary. They saw what Jesus did and believed in him. But some went back to the Pharisees and told on Jesus. The high priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Jewish ruling body. What do we do now, they asked. This man keeps on doing things, creating God's signs. If we let him go on, pretty soon everyone will be believing in him and the Romans will come and remove what little power and privilege we still have. Hi, my name is Lindsay and I'm one of the leaders at Detroit Church. Does this story ever make you wonder why Jesus waited so long to come help Lazarus and his sisters? I mean, we know that Jesus was waiting for Lazarus to die so that his disciples would have greater belief in him. He tells us that straight up in the story. And I can understand waiting maybe a day or something, but did Jesus really have to wait four whole days? Was it really necessary to wait that long? Lazarus was not the first person that Jesus raised from the dead. In the other Gospels, we see two other times where Jesus raised someone from the dead. Um, Jairus' daughter was raised back from life on her sickbed, and then there was a widow, we don't know her name, but she was from Naim, and her son was on his way to be buried, and he was raised from the dead by Jesus. Both of these stories, the, the person that was ill had just died, and Jesus was there on the scene within moments of the person dying and he raised them back to life right away. When I think about Lazarus and his sisters and the grief that they had to go through and for three whole days before Jesus got there, I mean three days can feel like eternity when you've just lost someone super close to you and for these women Lazarus was probably their source of protection um, and their source of provision and the uh, turmoil they were probably in just felt like eternity. Jesus obviously really loved Mary and Martha. They were his people, his trusted friends. And when someone that we really love is in dire need, we don't just think to ourselves like, okay, well, I'm just going to chill for a few days and I'll be there. I'll be there later. No, we drop whatever we've got going on and to go see how we can help. So why did Jesus wait so long? to respond to his friends that he loved. As I took some time to study this passage this week, I realized there's actually three times in the Gospel of John when someone close to Jesus asks him for something. The first time is when his mom asks him in John chapter two, 
to um, help out the host of a wedding when they ran out of wine. The second time was in John chapter 7 when his brothers asked him to go somewhere more populated so that more people could see his signs and wonders. And then we have this third story today where Jesus' close friends are reaching out to him and asking for help in a time of desperation. In all three of these situations, Jesus does not respond to their request immediately. In every situation, he considers the timing first. He delays in order to do something according to his Father's timing for his Father's glory. And it's interesting to me in all of these situations that Jesus does not deny their request. He just doesn't respond in the way or the timing that people are expecting. He has one priority that supersedes his love and his desire to rescue us, and that's obedience to his Father. I also discovered in my studies that in those days, because of the warm climate in Israel, bodies were buried pretty immediately upon death. They didn't have medical technology back then like we do now, obviously, and so it was not uncommon for people to actually be buried alive, like almost dead, but still alive. And I'm thinking because these, these other stories with Jairus' daughter and the widow's son, they happened so soon after their death, there may have been doubt in people's minds. Like, were they really dead? Were they just in a coma? Because of medical technology they didn't have, we won't know. In those days, it was also Jewish superstition that a person's spirit would hover over their grave for three days, hoping to return to the body. The fact that Jesus waited specifically until the fourth day is super significant because by the fourth day there was no hope for resuscitation. By waiting longer than everyone was comfortable with, Jesus was shattering every doubt about his authority and power. He has the authority not just over sickness, but truly over death. I am the resurrection and the life, he tells Martha. So we know that Jesus does everything with intentionality. Why was it so important for Jesus to demonstrate this doubt-shattering power over death at this particular time? So do you remember the first part of the story? When Jesus tells his disciples it's time to go and awaken Lazarus, his disciples were totally freaked out because they had just been in that part of the country and Jesus had almost been stoned by an angry mob. Returning was risky. So risky that his friend Thomas says, well, we might as well go with him and die right along with him. That risk was not imaginary. Jesus' death was in fact right around the corner. This act of raising Lazarus from the dead is the final sign that seals the deal, so to speak, on Jesus' fate. The religious leaders decide that after this outrageous miracle, they cannot handle anything else. He's gone too far and there's simply no way to let him continue on like this. It's after Lazarus' resurrection that the religious leaders begin to seriously plot Jesus' murder. The fact that Jesus chose to go and raise Lazarus is powerful, not only because he's going to help a friend in desperate need, but because he's actually embracing the Father's plan to lay down his own life. I believe that Jesus needed to raise Lazarus four days dead because he actually wanted to prepare his friends for his own death. 
so that in a short time later, as they watched him be brutally murdered, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he still had real power over death. He was building in them a faith that would enable them to endure the most difficult of tests. So now when I think about him loving Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and so because of his love, waiting a few more days to respond, his waiting was loving. It's as if he was saying to them, I love you enough to not give you exactly what you so desperately want right now, because I alone know what is coming and what it is you will really need for the days ahead. I want to give us a chance this morning to hear from my good friend Sam Pegida. As we've been praying together and developing a friendship over the past year, um, I watched a situation unfold in her life where God's timing was not all that she wanted, um, but in the end it was everything that she needed. So we're unpacking the story of Lazarus today. And I'm thinking about this situation you had in your life this last year where you were like waiting and waiting for God to speak and it was taking way longer than you thought. But in the end, we were able to see how um, God really, the delay was for your benefit and yeah. for his glory. Can yeah. you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, about a year and a half ago, God spoke to me to prepare me to uh, go a different direction as far as um, where I was working at. Uh, and I was super confused because he brought Sherman and I and our family here to Detroit, back to here to Detroit, to work with foster youth. Uh, we knew that, um, so I was super confused um, on just that he was he wanted me to go in a different direction. Um, so I thought. Um, so the summertime came around, and that's that's my I'm really really extremely busy during the summertime, and uh, I was like, there's absolutely no way that I can take my responsibility and fulfill it. You know, um, nor can I take it and um, pass it on to somebody else because there's just so much um, you, responsibility in that. You have to know what you're doing. So anyway, um, what uh, happened was the our organization, um, a great organization, uh, decided to go into a um, more detailed um, support system for foster youth, which is great. Uh, the only thing at that point was is we were looking for more staff to bring on um, and um, I was super excited about it. I couldn't wait to get started, you know, um, but then towards, I think it was a little bit after like the holidays, um, God was really working on my heart like certain things started happening, not just, um, not, not bad things. Uh, but just certain things started happening. I started feeling, you know, um, just a sense of, I just felt like there was so much more I was supposed to be doing. Sure. You know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And um, January came around and Detroit Church did a church-wide fasting. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Of course you remember that, of right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so during the church-wide fast, Sherman and I both did it. And um, what God revealed to me at that time was that uh, I got to goosebumps. Uh, was that I cared too much of what people thought about me um, professionally and um, personally. Yeah. And I had no idea. I thought it was just this confidence that I had, um, but it really was 
he brought me to my knees um, and um, yeah it was it was a real difficult time um, yeah so uh, at that time uh, God was working with me I was working with God on that because yeah. I couldn't do it on my own I yeah. knew I couldn't do it on my own uh, and um, the uh, I even I wrote actually because of that um, I wrote my resignation letter mm -hmm. so that was back in January I wrote my resignation letter I was really um, I was really not ready to do it you know I kept on praying I know I talked to you a few times yeah. about it um, God wants me to get ready for a new endeavor but yet I don't feel comfortable like and so I just started praying obviously you know I was praying during that time of fasting about where he wants me to go what he wants me to do and not just me but for my family and yeah. for the family that we created here in Detroit not just blood family but like the youth you know their families the foster families you know like how do you have me here working in these lives and building all these relationships with these you know um, with you know these youth and these families yet tell me I'm not I need to go in a different direction I was confused I was mad I was angry like there were so many different emotions but um, I was praying over that uh, that decision of resigning from my position um, and towards the end of January um, Owen and I both got sick actually Sherman got sick first um, then Owen then Sherman then Owen and then me um, and I was out of work for like two weeks uh, and it was I think it was the second or third week of February that uh, I continued to um, pray and I was I, I put my I did not put my resume out there but I finished my resume kind of a thing sure. um, and it was the week of Valentine's Day and um, I called my uh, boss and asked to have a meeting with him that Friday which was Valentine's Day um, with the anticipation of putting in my resignation over the phone but also sending the email just giving him a heads up that I was gonna send it in that day yeah. uh, because I really wasn't hearing from God I was like, this must be it, God. Like, mm -hmm. because I've been waiting this long. It's been a year now. This has to be it. Like, this really has to be it. Um, so I took it upon myself to <laughs> call my boss because, of course, I'm, I'm anxious. I, I want to have control. Yeah. Um, and then that Friday, um, I got my boss on the phone, and um, he was just so gracious, you know, and asked me how we were all doing and. Um, I told him and um, then that's when he told me that um, they they wanted to hire another um, master level social worker and I'm not a master's level social worker and that um, it was for the benefit of the foster youth which I totally understood uh, but however they were um, eliminating my position um, and it was like radio silence. I didn't know how to react, respond. Do I tell him I was gonna resign? Do I not tell him I was gonna resign, you know? Um, but it was great because we left off. He's like, look, you know, you're amazing at what you do. You know, he gave, he gave me so much confidence. He gave me more confidence, you know? Um,
uh, in the work that you know God has me doing, um, that He's doing, I should say, through me. Yeah. Um, and um, so yeah, and then a couple weeks later after that, um, the pandemic hit, and um, I started getting phone calls from a lot of different organizations yeah. um, in the city of Detroit. Um, offering me positions um, for uh, to work with foster youth. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I remember running into you um, that so you had this conversation on Friday. I remember Saturday morning we ran into each other That's in right. Eastern Market. That's right. And you start telling me what happened, and it was so striking um, because because you were laid off, they gave you um, a package like a severance package. Yes. And you were able to apply for unemployment. Yes, yes. Um, and so financially, God was covering you yeah. in a way where if you had resigned, you wouldn't have had yeah, that kind of absolutely. financial provision. Um, and then even just the kindness of God in, in waiting until He could deal with your heart. Yeah. Because if you had been um, laid off with that kind of false sense of worth still tied up in your job that could have been devastating yeah, like that yeah. could have really crushed you well i know for a fact it would have crushed me i've yeah. never been um i've never been fired laid off from a job before yeah. uh, so i know for a fact uh, that would totally have crushed me and um i do have depression too so i was like i knew that i would more than likely have gone into a deep depression yeah due to that um and so it was amazing Lynn, how God prepared me for that. And it's not just the fast absolutely helped, but he was preparing me for over a year and a half. Yeah. Like I knew for over a year that I was was leaving. Um, I just didn't know how it was gonna happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's so true. So that's right. incredible. He's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. I love, I just remember being so encouraged by the sovereignty of God yeah. on, on display yeah. in your life. Yeah. You, you couldn't see what was coming. I couldn't, I, I was praying with you too. Yes. I couldn't see what was yeah, coming, you, you know? Yeah, for sure. And yet, um, and here God knew and he was doing things that were uncomfortable, but kindness yes. to you in the yes. long run because he could see what it was you really needed. Absolutely. Um, I want to go to... Um, Mary and Martha for just a moment because as exciting as the story of Lazarus is you know we get to see Lazarus story in hindsight and get to see the full picture he rose from the dead right. you know? yeah. and even hearing your story right now it's like oh that year of kind of anxiousness and confusion now it makes sense and it's like oh God was so kind but but for a lot of people who are probably listening today um, and I know for me and I know places that you're in right now we feel a little bit more like Mary and Martha before Lazarus rose yeah. in that place of grief and yeah. mourning and questioning like why are you taking so long God yeah. can you just speak a little bit about kind of some of the, the the questions you still have or the pain that you still have right now yeah absolutely one thing I want to bring up from when um, I was going through that year year and a half of just trying to transition out um, it was difficult at home too yeah. yeah, just to be real, like, um, it was super difficult here at home because I was confused, I was yeah. anxious, I didn't know, and um, I really, I like to have control, right? Yeah. Like, I want to know what's going to happen, yeah. I have to have this schedule, and it's got to be this yeah. way, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the, the and this will lead into this, um, my next um, story too. Uh, so Sherman and I got married, um... December 13th, 2013, and I um, 
immediately became a mom um, of two beautiful daughters, Addison, who is 14 now. Wow. I know. She's a freshman in high school this coming fall. It's crazy. Yeah, totally crazy. And then um, Emerson, who is 10, um, and she'll be going into the fifth grade this fall as well, too. So uh, I immediately, immediately became a mom, um, which was so, just so beautiful and amazing um, in that sense, you know, just having like a, having a family already, you know. Um, I really didn't have to look forward to anything other than how can I be the best um, godly woman uh, for them when they're home, sure. you know. Um, at that time, they were with us uh, Monday overnights, Wednesday overnights, and then every other weekend. So we had really good in our, you know, really good, you know, time with them. Um, and. Uh, for legal reasons, I can't explain a lot of the things that have been going on, but when God told us to come back to Detroit, um, he also told us to prepare our hearts because we wouldn't be seeing our girls um, as much. Yeah. And we knew that, um, I would say, maybe like eight to nine months. Um, and we kept on like, we'll wait until they get to high school <laughs> um, to move to Detroit. Yeah. Um, and uh, it ha what happened was um, one of Sherman's family members, actually his mom got sick um, and that was, that was it for us. We knew we had to come to yeah. be here with her um, and that's when it happened and that was June 2018 mm -hmm. um, and um, we have not seen our girls since September of 2018. It's hard because through through all of that, um, like I know we're here because God wants us here. Um, all the lives, like we've had six young ladies come to Christ, and sometimes it's hard because I think about not just the lives of of young ladies that um, have given their life to Christ, but I also think about like <laughs> I, I selfishly think like, well, all these girls, you know, all these young people who have now know know Christ, um, know the know the Jesus we know, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, my daughters don't get to have any kind of interaction with. in the midst of um, missing our babies. Um, we also um, had four miscarriages. Um, two of them were into the second trimester and um, the other two, um, I was so numb to it that I just didn't even want to know anything. Uh, the first baby was a boy. Uh, we named him Poppy. <laughs> And um, the second was a girl, and we named her um, Ro. Um, but we also were told that um, I have a chromosomal um, defect where um, I'm 
scientifically, and this is what the genealogist said, sure. scientifically, I'm not able to have my own children for my own eggs, yeah. um, which was so devastating. Mm -hmm. You know, um, here I am, a stepmom, um, and I, I never was, my girls never called me stepmom uh, or referred to me as their stepmom. Um, the day we got married, um, we were downstairs in the church after we got married, and the girls um, said, can we call you Miss Mommy? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, they were called, they called me Miss Sam for so long um, as we were dating, and um, so they called me Miss Mommy. So I never really referred to myself as a stepmom, um, yeah. but um, there were so many mixed emotions with that too. Um, God, you made me an instant mom right with these two beautiful daughters and I get why um, through prayer and and counsel and discussions with my husband you know yeah. um, I am you know at that time I was the only um, godly mother that they had sure. right um, and God revealed to me it was just until the time where their mother accepted him you know um, which I understood but um, you know, dealing, wrestling with your, the bonus mom, you know, Sam Pagita, you're a bonus mom. Um, you're not good enough to have your own children. Sure. Right? Um, and then you failed your husband. Mm. So there's a lot. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and when we, when we don't understand, um, suffering and the loss it's really easy to just start having questions about God's yeah. character you yeah. know like yeah. does God even want to help me is he is he able to help yeah. me is yeah. he powerful enough like or or turn and make it about ourselves you know like do I have enough faith like am I a good enough person yeah. you know yeah didn't I serve person. didn't I do what I was supposed to do God like you're the one who told me that I'll be having my own biological kids. Like, these are the things, Linz, that, like, conversations that I would have with God. Yeah. You know, like, I remember the first day we found out we were pregnant with Poppy. Um, I literally got on my knees and I was just praising him for being so amazing, you know? I'm like, I can't believe we're pregnant. Like, this is yeah. so great, you know? And then when we lost Poppy, I was like, I can't believe I'm so devastated and disappointed mm -hmm. yet I was on my knees praising you yeah. <laughs> for this life that's now gone yeah you know um, so there was there there was a lot you know yeah. and um, and I did go back into like a super deep depression like it was one of the deepest depressions I've ever been in um, I kept all ultrasounds of them and um, Sam, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, in my own life, you know, two of the people closest to me are are suffering. One, you mentioned depression. One has been in a decade-long battle with depression, and another has been fighting for her life for the last few years. And um, even though I see their spiritual renewal happening, like they've changed so much mentally and spiritually because of the journey they've been on yeah. through this affliction. Um, but there's still this real physical suffering that's happening. And 
and I, I think about Mary and Martha and how, you know, even, even after they had seen Lazarus be risen, um, the questions they still must have had, you know? Like, why, why did we have to spend these three whole days, four whole days grieving? You know, like, mm-hmm. couldn't you come a little sooner? Like, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't going to make sense to them um, until so much later. Um, really until Jesus um, proved his victory over death once and for all when he himself resurrected and ascended and and it became clear to all of his followers that this was all really about salvation yeah. and all really about salvation yeah. for all of mankind yeah. and for the glory of God yeah. it's no matter how tough it gets no matter how sad of a day I may have no matter how much I miss our girls I know it's all for his glory no matter like seeing all my friends getting pregnant having children complaining about their children (laughs) complaining about their pregnancies yeah Um, it's taken a while but I know that it is all for his glory, all of it, every, every, every tear, every um, discussion I may have with somebody or every time I, you know, just crawl up in a ball and start crying and um, my husband comes over and prays over me. We just know that it's all for his glory. Every, every minute of every day, it's for his glory. Um, and we do, we have to stay focused on him. You know, um, that's telling you that's the only thing that has gotten us through. Yeah. The only thing that's gotten us through, knowing that his purpose and his plan in the midst of all this chaos and craziness and disbelief of what is actually being said and done, mm-hmm. um, it's all for his glory. Yeah. One of the most beautiful parts of this story is that it reveals the heart of God for mankind in the midst of our grief and suffering. He is not a God who is distant and far off. He's not a God that sits back and says, whoa, hang tight, the glory's coming. He's not some narcissistic ruler that enjoys inflicting pain and grief. No, instead we see in Jesus the image of the invisible God, that he is a God who is compassionate, who is moved by our suffering, who joins us in our grief. Jesus was the only person present at the grave that day who knew the final outcome. He knew how the story was going to work out for Lazarus and his sisters. He knew that in moments their tears of mourning were going to turn into tears of joy and profound amazement, but that didn't stop him from joining in the emotion of the moment. So how many of you out there are those people that have already seen the movie and already know how it ends, but you still cry at all the sad parts? (laughs) All right, well, the next time your family or friends makes fun of you for that, you can tell them you're just trying to be like Jesus. In that moment at the grave, Jesus didn't gloss over their pain. He didn't chide them for their sorrow. He didn't placate them with trite cliches. He didn't tell them to suck it up. He didn't rush their grief. He didn't tell them to move on. In fact, he did the total opposite. He entered the grief with them. He was God, he was sovereign, he was almighty, 
But as we've been reminded in every chapter of our journey through John so far, he was a man like us, sympathetic to our weakness, subject to our suffering. Jesus wept is the most famous verse in the Bible because of how short it is. But those two words speak volumes about the character and the nature of God. When I think about Jesus weeping, I see that not only is he moved by the sorrow um, of his friends, but he's also broken over the weight of sin and darkness in the world that leads us to death in the first place. He is so very aware that this was not the plan A for humanity. Death was not the Father's original idea. Death entered the world because of choices that we made. We chose our own way. And he knows ultimately that Lazarus will die again, as would every other single person around him. When I think about his tears that day, I know he's also aware in that moment that he himself is about to die. He himself is about to become the sin that he so desperately hates because it separates us from the God he came to reveal and draw us to. He himself is on his way to the cross. He knows that by choosing to exercise power to raise Lazarus, he's choosing his own death. That there's a lot of torture ahead, that there's the bitterness of rejection and betrayal. There's immense physical pain, a, a gruesome death, and there's actually a grave just like the one he's standing in front of waiting for him. In this story, Jesus reveals that he has come to do more than conquer the death of our physical bodies. He's come to bring eternal life to our souls, even though we know our bodies won't last forever. We've seen a lot of death in the world these past few months. We are perhaps um, even more aware than ever of the effects of hate and greed and violence and disease and suffering. And I don't know about you, but I've been more aware than ever that for none of us, life is guaranteed. Maybe you're watching this today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet and you're wondering, what does it mean to have true life? So we believe that we were all created by God designed to be in his family and in his presence forever. We believe that the choices that humanity has made, both collectively and individually, separate us from God's presence because he is perfectly loving and always just and we're clearly not. We believe that all of us, every single one of us, fall short of God's perfection, that none of us can gain access to his presence on our own. We believe that because he hated the distance between us, he put on flesh and bones and came to live on the earth for 33 years before giving up his life as punishment for our sin and brokenness. We believe that this story about Lazarus is truer than true, that it's not some cool fairy tale, but it's actual history. We take him at his word when he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? We believe that Jesus is the only way to have peace with God. The only way to have true peace inside. 
His physical body left the earth when he ascended back to heaven after he died and rose again, but he gave us his spirit to live in the hearts of men, to be with us forever, to be our comforter, our teacher, our guide, our conviction, our, our open channel to the throne of God. Now we who believe have been adopted into God's family forever and we have access to his presence. Now nothing, nothing, not death, not life, not angels or rulers, not the present, not things to come, not the past, not powers, not death, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that's the kind of resurrection power you need in your life today, here's the invitation. Jesus extends to you. You give me your life, and I'll give you mine. Have you heard about these bigger or better games? Where you start with something super small and insignificant, and you keep trading for something bigger or better until you end up with something super awesome? I recently read about this Canadian blogger who started with a paperclip, and over, I think it was 14 trades in one year, managed to end up with a two-story farmhouse. This swap that Jesus offers is a way more epic because it doesn't involve 14 trades. He says, I'll take your life, no matter how messy, how broken, however insignificant, and I'll give you my true life and my place as a son in God's house instead. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a very wise swap, but it is not an easy swap because regardless of how messed up our lives are, they're still our lives. So handing our lives to Jesus means giving up control, giving up addictions, giving up our resources and our own agenda. It means dying to things we want every single day. But the life he offers in return? There is nothing that's as good as being made right before God and having eternal access to his presence. Nothing like it at all. There's one last thing I want to point out from this passage before we wrap up today. When Lazarus comes out of the grave, he is still wrapped in a mummy suit. When Jesus called him to come out of the grave, he didn't supernaturally blast his grave clothes off. He actually tells the people who are standing around him, loose him and let him go. And everywhere I look in the New Testament and see Jesus doing his thing, I see him looking for our participation. He does what only he can do, but he requires us to be involved for what we can do. Like when he tells the disciples to go find some food so he can multiply it, or when he tells the, the paralytic to pick up his mat and walk, or the woman caught in adultery to go and sin no more, or the, the man he cleansed from leprosy to go and wash and present himself to the priest. There's all these ways that he requires our participation in the salvation and redemption process famous guy named Spurgeon said it like this, what a man can do for himself, God will not do for him. And what Christian people can do for sinners, they must not expect the Lord to do. They must work themselves according to the ability God has given them up to the point of possibility. And then they may look for divine interposition. So can you imagine how weird it would have been if all the people standing around watching this miracle unfold had like given a little praise Jesus and then left Lazarus there stuck in his grave clothes. But I mean, how often do we do this in the church, right? We give a quick hallelujah when we see someone reaching out for salvation and then leave the person 
um, to untangle themselves from the messiness of their old life. Jesus commanded us to make disciples who make disciples, not just to make converts who prayed some salvation prayer and went on living the same old life. He requires our participation to come alongside, to walk with, to be family with these new sons and daughters that are coming into his eternal family. So if you have already been made alive in Christ, then my last question from this passage is for you. When you look around, where do you see the resurrection power of Jesus at work? And how is he asking you to participate in the total freedom of someone coming to know him? Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.